Welcome to the SeaWorld at Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about disability and conservation. I'm Jenna Mathiasen, an objects conservative based in Camarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Manchester. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Yes, and we're in an unusual location today. We're in the best location. This is the best recording location we've had, Aww. I think. To, to give you a clue, we are gently rocking. The and sun there are, is shining outside. There are swans. There are swans. There's a cat. We're on a boat. We're on someone's boat and we have a special guest host today. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, hi, I'm Pierrette Squires and I'm the team leader at Bolton Museums, also a conservator. Welcome! <laughs> Thank you. Which feels weird to say seeing as we are in your houseboat and we're saying welcome to you. <laughs> Thank you for being Welcome on the show. You thank you for coming. <laughs> and thank you for letting us be in your house. <laughs> yes. It's wonderful. The sun is shining. The boat is gently rocking. There's cats. It's so lovely. There's, there's people walking around. Yeah. It's just, it's just super nice. We're waiting, for, we're waiting for any second when Milo might join in. And Milo being the cat. Who, yeah. And he might start pushing things off the table, which will be exciting. So I'm hoping for that. To be you honest. can look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> So why are we here? Why why are we here talking about disability? Shall we talk about our experiences with disability? Yes, I think that's probably a good idea. Okay. <laughs> okay, so um, this is an interesting thing because I feel like it wasn't until I started filling in forms the way that you do in Britain yeah. that I started thinking about whether I'm disabled. Yeah. Because in a lot of these sorts of forms that are about the diversity monitoring and stuff like that, I feel like that sort of thing where it's like, you know, how, what's your um, ethnicity mm-hmm. and your uh, sexual orientation and then it also asks do you identify as disabled and then it usually had like a little asterisk next to it Mm -hmm. and it says and we define this by being a long-term illness or something that impacts your daily life for 12 months or more sort of Mm -hmm. thing oh i didn't know that and then it's like that's interesting it's under the equality act of 2010 that's how they sort of define that so it can be anything that affects your health and your ability to carry out daily tasks that can be working life or home life that's the fine print Mm -hmm. it's sort of like (laughs) this is how we define that do you feel like you identify under those terms as disabled and i was like oh i do i will tick the yes box then because i do so i have various long-term illnesses and i have so many health complications guys (laughs) it's not even funny Um, she rattles when she walks yeah (laughs) (laughs) but they're all like i guess what you would say is unseen like uh, unseen or or hidden (laughs) i don't feel like i hide them but they're unseen (laughs) unseen disabilities so i started ticking the yes box and that meant that i sort of had another thing to identify as Mm -hmm. because Previously, I hadn't really thought about it. I just thought, mm. well, I'm just someone who's chronically ill. But I didn't really think of it as I'm also disabled because I sort of felt yeah. like it's a very loaded word sometimes. It can be a loaded word. But that's when I really started thinking about it as like, well, no, it does impact my everyday life. It impacts how I work. Mm. Actually, that totally, I nailed that definition. <laughs> that yeah, it's interesting. It. It's interesting that you started with forms, actually, because yeah. a lot of the time for me... I didn't think about it, apart from when I was applying for jobs. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Mm. Because it's the only time somebody directly asks you that question. Mm. Yeah. And for listeners that don't know me, I'm totally deaf in one ear mm-hmm. and my hearing in the other ear isn't perfect either. So I've got less than 50% of hearing. Mm. Mm. You can't see it. 
Mm-hmm. I don't wear a hearing yeah. aid because there's no hearing in my deaf ear to amplify force. Yeah. So there's no <laughs> yeah. point. So it's really interesting because until I was applying, I applied for a job or to be a trustee on something or something like that. I don't usually think about it that much because most of the time I communicate I hope, reasonably well with people. Mm-hmm. Because I had speech therapy as a child and I had a mother that still now corrects my speech every time something (laughs) sounds a bit deaf. Most people go, you don't talk like a deaf person. I was going to bring that up because... Oh, that um, sounds like one of those comments that you've... Because someone says accidentally and they regret. (laughs) (laughs) Because my other half's uh, sister lost her hearing when she was quite small. But everyone always says, well, you don't sound deaf. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) Yes. And she's like, it's like the number one thing that, thing that she really hates is like, well, thanks. I'm glad I pass as a <laughs> normal human being. Thanks. It's like, yeah. what's the point in saying that? Oh, it's so odd. People are weird. Yeah. I think it's just one of those knee-jerk reactions of, I, f- I feel like I need to say something to that because I didn't realise, oh, you don't sound deaf. Oh, great. Yeah, completely. So, yeah, so apart from... Or oh, oh, you don't look disabled. That's another good yeah, one. Which yeah, which is very similar. Yeah. And so apart from when I have that kind of form to fill in most of the time it's not forefront of my mind Mm, unless mm. I can't hear yeah and we'll come on to more of lockdown and Mm, the nightmare that mask wearing was Um, but (laughs) yeah (laughs) normal everyday life it doesn't impact me that much day Mm, to day yeah Mm. or at least I think it doesn't Um, you you don't perceive that it does and that's maybe the important bit yes yeah yeah, occasionally that has its disadvantages. May I ask, is, like, have you been deaf on one ear for a long time? I've, yeah, I've always had some okay. hearing problems, even okay. when I was tiny. Yeah. Like, so I think six weeks old, I was first in hospital with hearing problems, something like that. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, since forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it got significantly worse when I was in my very early 20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, okay. Interesting. So, yeah. Okay. That must have been quite a hard time to sort of fight, feel it more. Um, I think it was harder the fact that it was um, many years disease that made it significantly worse. Oh, interesting. So the That's actual quite the a rare hearing, disease. yeah. So hearing loss wasn't the worst bit for me. The worst mm-hmm. bit was that it came with all the dizziness and everything else that very active many years comes with. Oh, yes, right. my mum has that. So uh, no, thankfully it's now not active. Touch with <clears throat> that it'll not be active anytime soon. Mm. Yes, yes. So in in a way, it was the the bit that actually impacted your life. That was the that was the thing. The much more and, visible bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if I could just be deaf, thanks very much. That would be great. Yeah, that would be brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. not having A&E stuff going, what drugs have you taken? What, what have you been drinking? <sighs> like, nothing. I'm just dizzy. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes. about that. Yeah. Yes, the discrimination is as bad in the health service as it is in normal public society. <laughs> uh, you will find it everywhere. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. That is true. <laughs> Chloe, we haven't really covered you yet in terms of... No. Do you feel like you fit into this category or i didn't you don't have to i there's so there's a number of things that's gone on for me in the last couple of years that has changed my outlook mm-hmm. quite considerably and we've talked on the show before i think maybe in episode one season one oh of God. who are we yeah uh, we talked about demographics demogra- that's the d word that i was looking yeah, for yeah. this struggle for language is going to become clear <laughs> Um, the demographics indicated that only 2% of... In 2013, only mm. 2% of Conservatives identified as disabled. Yeah. We've also talked about in the past whether or not you one would tick the disabled box in yeah. job applications. Mm. Yeah. And I think at the time, 
I didn't because in 20... Uh, when were we doing it? 16? Yeah, 20... 16, 17. 2017. We yeah, did this episode, another episode, I think it was an Emerging Professionals episode. Mm-hmm. I've been diagnosed with dyslexia in university and I always thought, oh, it's not really a disability though, is it? For some people it is, certainly, mm. but not for me because it's not that severe. It was that sort of... Not that I don't think that dys- dyslexia is a disability because I, it obviously it is and people have it to different extents. And I just thought, well, with the type of work I do and the way that I've like managed it th- mm. through having only been diagnosed with it at 18, I just thought, oh, you know, I just, I just won't. So I sort of left that there. Mm. And I think in the past I have tissed... I've begun ticking the box. Ah. Um, <laughs> And then in the last couple of years, I've been starting to think about neurodiversity quite a bit. We've we've been talking. Well, dyslexia is neurodiversity. It, it yeah. is, but this is this is. So I just thought that I was a bit crap at things, you know, <laughs> a bit disorganised. Timekeeping is a dyslexia thing, so I thought, oh, whatevs, it might be that might be a thing. You just need to like grow up, or you. Just, and I've sort of always thought about, oh, I'm just scatty. I just, I've got a bad memory. I'm, you know, all of the language that was applied to kids. I'm going to say in the '90s because mm-hmm. '90s and early 2000s because that's when I was at school. All of that language, oh, she's scatty. Oh, this head in the clouds, off with the fairies. Like all of that sort of. Or you're just not paying attention all of that I sort of internalized that and I just didn't it did not occur to me and then in the, since Covid in fact but you know not necessarily just because of Covid just a number of things happened in my life that raised my stress and anxiety levels to such an extent that I just thought I took a step back and thought hang on a minute this isn't how people Ah, <laughs> this is not. This is there's something going on here. But I'm pretty sure I have ADHD, and it's surprisingly common. And also, there can are ducks. anyone hear the ducks? <laughs> Speaking of easily distracted, <laughs> I know they will we're, interrupt you. I walk with animal interactions. <laughs> we're really lucky that the cat isn't shuffling around because he's sitting behind me. And I remember in a lesson there being a noise that kept happening behind me when I was really young and I could not stop myself from turning around and <laughs> I look at that now I look back on that now and I'm like why did no one realize like, <laughs> why did no one realize that oh. I'm, I'm like this uh, anyway I've talked to GP about it mm-hmm. and you know I'm not a seven-year-old boy who's acting I, out who's acting out yeah. and mm-hmm. flicking stuff at the teacher so essentially he says I don't have ADHD because I am a safe driver. I have a job, and I have friends. <laughs> I was like, I'm like oh, okay. And I was so sort of. It just strikes me as really medieval. Exactly. Sort of- and I, I, I was so sort of just defeated by that that I gave up. And then I spoke to a counselor about it a few months later, and this counselor said that. ADHD was a sort of fashionable club at the moment and she didn't see the point in getting any sort of diagnosis because it, it wasn't really a thing and, and I was just like okay fine I'm just gonna that's where we are with it that's yeah. as far as I've gone with it apart from yesterday 
thinking about this topic and I did a uh, online adult ADHD screening with ADHD UK I imagine it's legit it seemed legit everything was seemed good about it and mm-hmm. I, I filled in the form and it was one of the as my partner put it yeah I got full marks too <laughs> 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 just basically listing, reading through a list of things like, does everyone not do this? This is what it's like a lot with particularly uh, neurodiversity, I mm. think. It's being introduced to the concept that this isn't how everyone functions. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's news to you, like truly. And you're like, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. In some ways you can be blissfully unaware of the fact that you're different. Because it doesn't matter essentially if it's not impacting your life. Yeah, sure, but you can be blissfully unaware, but you can also find yourself incredibly frustrated with things of like, why why don't you see it this way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Or why aren't you giving me time to do this? Why are you rushing me? Why are you you making this confusing? I've felt like that. Exactly. At work, definitely. So, one of the things I discovered in recent years was the term death gain. Oh. Which is some of the benefits that you have from being deaf. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is really nice. And unbeknownst to me, a lot of deaf people and a lot of people with other sensory losses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. develop other heightened sensory awareness around other That's a thing? Things. Yes. Oh, wonderful. I thought and that was just a the thing they said in the films. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's an actual thing. That's wonderful. And I didn't know that it's very common for people who are deaf to have extremely good spatial awareness. Uh, of course. That's a superpower. Of course. And yeah. I would just get extremely frustrated mm. sometimes at family, colleagues, other people, sorry to anybody I've been really frustrated at, <laughs> when <laughs> they would be either wanting to measure to the nth degree or right. absolutely insisting something wouldn't fit somewhere. Right. Or that it would fit. Or that it would fit <laughs> when they couldn't see it. Uh, and I have realised over the years mm. that if I've seen a space, even if I'm not in that yeah, space, yeah. even if that space is in a different country, I instinctively know what would fit in that space down to less than two centimetres. That is amazing. Wow. As a conservator, this is an incredibly useful it's skill when you're moving power. large collections and yes, you need to tessellate things into a space. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't, I didn't know. And it was only when I started looking in mm. and had been to... I went to a brilliant conference in Cardiff, actually, about disability and accessibility mm-hmm. in museums. And then also have been generally talking to people about things more. That this this particular thing came up and I was like, oh, that's why I get so mad at people. <laughs> Everybody else doesn't think like that. Oh, so that's you, really interesting. I, I give people a bit more oh, yeah, space yeah. now to... <laughs> Not just now, because that's they might really, not have the power. At the yeah, moment. that's amazing because that's all. That sort of if that you didn't have the deafness as well, it would you'd be like, oh, so that's a neurodiversity, isn't it? And it sort of is. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how you would. I don't know how you would. You know, diagnose well, it, it, it medically. Yeah, but because it, your brain is wired in a slightly different exactly. way to compensate yeah, yeah. for something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aww. That's amazing. Mm. That's really oh, cool. I'm jealous. I do feel that there are things about well neurodiversity, but all. The, all the way that everyone is that mm. gives you benefits and yeah that and, absolutely and, will be and uh, what's the word it can be really hard Down. to see those on days when you're in pain or you hate everything or you're like yeah it sucks that i can't do that thing that everyone else can like those days suck yeah and everyone will have them but there are definitely 
you know, like good things too. Yeah, I am grateful I am who I am. Like, yeah, yeah. People have sort of said to me, whilst I've been going through the the sort of, do I diagnose? Do I not? Oh no, Mm. wait, I can't because I don't have eight hundred pounds to spend on private (laughs) diagnosis or whatever (laughs) it is. Um, Do you want medication? Mm. And my attitude is, well, no, because I don't really know who I would be on medication. Mm. And I don't, the, when I was talking to the counsellor, she was referring to me as hyper aware. Mm-hmm. And that didn't even occur to me that people don't see the world in this way. And yeah. I don't like the idea that I would be sort of shut off from the things that I notice. And in a way, that's an anxiety related, like... loss of control in my view but also like why why yeah if you don't notice something if i don't sort of become extremely aware of there's a weird smell what's Mm. going on okay that's like fear of missing out but like it is it's exactly fear of missing (laughs) out but not on social media yeah exactly like i've walked into stores and noticed problems with the collections because of a very faint smell that hasn't been noticed by Mm, other people for example there are things about the way that everyone is that is distinct and that's why neurodiversity is so difficult to talk about and diagnose and then you know make allowance for or allowances for or not decisions on medication a lot of these things are contributions to society mm-hmm. and you know yeah. if society had nobody that noticed the first bit of the smell of the fire yeah. or yeah. something yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. how many more major things would there exactly. be and, you know the, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if there's ever been a study to look at how many times was it somebody who was neurodiverse or something else that yeah. was the first one to highlight that problem mm. or to yeah. probably quite often yeah, yeah. probably yeah. Will, who will notice a pattern of change or yeah. something else yeah, yeah absolutely that's so, a good point yeah. that's a really good point yeah I quite like that yeah yeah. I think at this point I want to just do a shout out to a student I had over the summer of um, 2021. I don't know if they listen regularly or not, but I just want to say that talking with this person really like... Uh, about they, superpowers or no about, about or? ADHD in particular. Oh, okay. uh, I wanted to say it earlier, but I forgot her. <laughs> um, that talking with them about their diagnosis and what they noticed in me and chatting about that really really helped so thank you for that can i add into that to anybody who's listening in a position to host any students i've had a similar experience Ah. where hosting a student who had struggled with chronic pain and being able to empathize at a point where i was particularly ill Mm. made a massive difference to me oh and it's you don't just host students for the benefit of the students. Nope, so any students exactly. out there who are feeling a burden on your host, nope. it's massively important both for yep. the hosts and for the students. And please, yep. people, host students and provide interesting internships yep. because this sort of thing, mm-hmm. a lot of the time we're lone working or working in a tiny team. Absolutely. And you don't often get to connect with other people who may be in a similar situation mm-hmm. in the profession. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Absolutely. I mean, that's part of, part of being a bit more visible because... Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's still 2% of conservators who identify as disabled, whether that's gone up and whether that's actually that we're more diverse or if it's because people have realised that they might have disabilities or that it's okay to say that you have. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's been a lot of fear historically about Mm -hmm. saying that or identifying as disabled. And I think we're letting go of that fear a little bit and the sort of strange stigmas we attach to it yeah absolutely um, i don't know if the percentage of people who would tick the box 
has changed that much from mm. some of the discussions we had as part of the um, sort of task and finish stuff mm-hmm. I was looking at. But I think certainly there's a lot more openness when you're talking to each other these days. Yeah. That's the thing for me yeah. that's a really big difference. Oh, yeah. that's good. I definitely think it's more than 2%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just thinking of the people I know and I talk to you regularly, it's mm-hmm. a lot more than 2%. Yeah. But I'm not yet sure how much that has filtered down into people feeling safe to disclose things and that there won't be repercussions at point of interview and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of wondering what the fear factor is there. For me, it was much more about reckoning with myself. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, do I do I tick this box? Is this me? And it was so much less about what will they think of me. But mm-hmm. that's slightly because I'm one of those people who are like, I don't give a shit what you think about that. <laughs> if it's true, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> but I recognise that not everyone <laughs> is like that. <laughs> I am a little bit like that. Sorry about that. And But it's like, what's the worst thing that could happen? I mean, if you're qualified, you'll still get an interview. Like, they're not really allowed to just discriminate against you. I suppose the thing is, at what point can you tell when somebody isn't picking you to interview? And that's yeah. the thing that people get concerned about, Yeah, understandably. Because, you know, if you know they're going to interview maximum six people for a job, mm-hmm. yeah. and they have a lot of applicants... Yeah. yeah. At what point do they call? Yeah. yeah. And then you can't... And I, can, I totally understand people's concern over that. Yeah. Because you're exposing yourself. Mm, yeah, it's true. It shouldn't need to be a concern. People absolutely shouldn't be culling in that way. Yeah. But but you can't tell that's true. You can't tell. And if mm. there are some places where they have statistically far fewer people with disabilities than other places, you begin to wonder, Yeah. Mm-mm. is there a reason yeah. for that? Is something going on at that selection process? You don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I do feel like it can be a little bit self-selecting in some ways because some you know how job descriptions are sometimes very specifically written and sometimes it's like I love that you put this little bit at the end here about how you really appreciate applications from disabled people and people of minorities and all of that but you've written this job spec in a way that is hostile to anyone who isn't (laughs) able-bodied for example I can't go for any job that demands I have a car and a driving license because I'm not medically allowed to drive, so that's not happening. Uh, so if people put that as the essential criteria, mm. and they often do, that means that you're excluding a number of disabled people, anyone of a different socioeconomic background mm-hmm. who can't afford to yeah. have those things. And it's- also an awful lot of people now who ethically, because of climate yes. change, yeah. no longer accept owning and driving a car yeah. yes yeah. exactly i mean the world needs to change <laughs> yeah. Fast. yeah so that's like my number one bugbear i think where i'm like mm, look at that why like mm-hmm. why is it that you can't just decide that you're gonna car share if the store is in a remote location for example stuff like mm-hmm. that Cause i understand that mm-hmm. a lot of the time heritage sites are in weird places or we store our stuff in a shed in a field you know mm-hmm. i've seen all sorts right like that's I understand yeah. that. But also there's got to be some sort of amount of planning, right? Where it's like, yeah. well, we need a van to transport all the stuff in anyway, so we all go in the van together. And, you know, if there's a fuel crisis and there is no fuel, yeah. if they're expecting people to only <laughs> transport themselves by a fuel-powered vehicle... <laughs> You're still not going to be able to get there. No. Yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. it's bizarre. <laughs> not until the day when self-driving electric cars are the sole yeah, thing yeah, anyone exactly. travels in, which is not here yet. Yes. <laughs> and the reality is people do make do with the stuff that they have because, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, exactly. the number of people that 
don't have someone to quickly nip over to the store in a car and pick something up is yeah. huge. So you just arrange some other way of doing it. Exactly. This, this... The reality is if somebody had got a job with a driving licence on a job that said essential to have a driving licence mm. and then lost the ability to have a driving yeah. licence yes. anymore for some reason, whether they were doing some dodgy illegal activity or whether it was... At which point their job might be in risk anyway or whether it was because... <laughs> They developed epilepsy mm-hmm, and were no yes. longer allowed to drive. Mm-hmm, yeah. It would be illegal to get rid of them because they'd yeah. developed a disability yes, that meant yeah. they couldn't drive. Yeah. So if it's illegal to do that when somebody develops something, it should also mm. be illegal to discriminate against somebody mm. at employment yeah. point mm. Absolutely. because of a driving licence. Absolutely. It's so archaic. That yeah. It's, yeah. It's a really weird requirement. Yeah. And yeah. It really is. <laughs> if you're in charge of recruitment and you're listening to this, please consider just dropping that stuff because it's it ridiculous it like yeah. just consider alternatives yeah anyway so i wanted to talk about whether are conservators disabled and can they be and obviously they can be because here yeah. we are <laughs> <laughs> obviously hello so that's uh, obviously a, a question that i'm asking in jest but i find it interesting that we don't really talk about it i don't mm-hmm. really see it very much represented and Mm -hmm. again we're getting back to the two percent of like oh it's because there aren't that many (laughs) i don't know that's true though i I just really wanted to do this episode so that we could actually talk about the fact that no we do exist and i know Pret that you've you've done work here with the task and finish group and i don't know if you can talk a bit around that what came out Um, of it um i don't know if you can basically a little bit uh, basically an awful lot came out that basically everybody just needs to do a lot more. Everywhere needs to change. Yeah. Mm. You know, I mean, this was a task and finish group for the Institute of Conservation, but what we were hearing was um, the issues within people's workplaces, the issues that people have at recruitment, the issue, all sorts of things. Mm. There needs to be, and we this won't just be within our profession, but particularly within our profession, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and I think probably because it's quite a tiny profession and because there often are those things of you must be able to drive, you must be able to lift, you must be able yeah. to... That people have felt excluded before they've even started. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a huge lack of people with invisible disabilities being visible. And then I think that where there really is a gap is there are very few conservators with visible disabilities. That's true. Because yeah. when you go to mm. conferences and things... You almost never see people with walking aids in a wheelchair. Yeah, no. You know, the, the, the much more classical, if you were imagining most people were imagining somebody with a disability, mm. the things that you would see, I think maybe once or twice I've seen somebody who I would go, oh, that person's disabled looking mm-hmm. at them. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's that's extremely rare. And I think probably those people feel more excluded than anybody because they will never see somebody like themselves mm-hmm. in yeah. the space. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously difficult with people who have invisible disabilities because it's hard to know when somebody yeah. else <laughs> yeah. unless you know is them. like yeah. you unless yeah, yeah. you know them. But I yeah. think what has really changed over the last few years is social media, people are connecting much more. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So people know each other a lot more because of that and will then congregate at things and chat about stuff yeah exactly so i've I've taken to wearing pin badges when i go to conferences yes (laughs) to just highlight that like yes so here is someone who is who is disabled and you can talk to me about it Mm -hmm. like sort of making it more of a safe thing Mm -hmm. of like uh, a visibility and b if this is also you yeah i'm safe no we just need to do better as a sector really yeah absolutely i think talking about it is a huge starting point you know the number of people that because of the 
task and finish group all the sort of open roundtable events then connected with other people who they didn't know mm-hmm. were in a similar situation mm-hmm. i think was really helpful for people yeah because it wasn't really something that icon really talked about before not no, in a, not in a or, way that i felt engaged the membership or anywhere really in the profession you just didn't no. hear about it unlike sort of things like say big museums conferences where there had relatively often been a session on something to do with yeah. some form of disability or access creating an accessible exhibition or something mm-hmm. like that yeah yeah, yeah. exactly but you didn't there really, really see that. wasn't in conservation no not no. at all that's yeah. so interesting because I would love to go to a session, whether that's by a like run by a supplier or by conservators themselves, about creating an accessible lab, for yeah. example. Yeah. I yeah, would yeah. be all about that. That would be super cool because you know what? Even if you're able-bodied now, by the time you get into your 60s, and God knows how long we all work now. <laughs> um, 70s? Like, yeah. just thinking about how much you might need to adapt your workspace to getting older. Mm, yeah. Um, that's, and we all injure ourselves at work. Like, mm. <laughs> I've definitely self-sustained some of these things. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes we just need to adapt our spaces to work with how we're aging, how we're developing, yeah. how, we, how we're managing our bodies. I would love to see a session like that. Yeah. That would be so cool. I feel that we're really used to working to the absolute limit of our yeah, abilities really physically harmful. and mentally in conservation that we're and that is something that's worth acknowledging that we yes, usually we are a team of one or two when it should be a team of five with or twenty, some, or yeah. 20 <laughs> with some, you know, manual handling techs and, and everything. Yeah. And I think we're quite used to saying, well, conservation is just a very physical job. Like It is, but, you know, you don't need to be the one that is groveling around on the floor y- yeah. and picking up heavy things. <laughs> or and lifts a sculpture onto the lab bench to treat the patch of corrosion on it. Exactly. Yeah. There are solutions. And actually, safe manual handling says that we should be doing a lot less of it, even if you're fully yeah. able-bodied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And with results in far less sickness back pain everything else for the mm. people who are fit and well yes, yes exactly yeah, absolutely because okay. i was trying to think i was okay so what are some some ways that like a workplace might be able to support a variety of disabilities in terms of just like easy fixes and i was like mm. well have some manual lifting equipment anything yeah. that helps a range yeah. of trolleys yes yeah. <laughs> hydraulic lifting equipment mm-hmm. actually a ladder that isn't tables. dangerous yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you just need to not work from the assumption that everyone's super able-bodied. And that's that's not even a difficult assumption. Just imagine yourself on a really bad day. <laughs> and in fact, you should just yeah. be working from the assumption that if something is more than, and I know there are set kilo amounts when you're looking at manual handling, but more than the amount that starts to cause damage if you do it repeatedly, yeah. mm. if those are the collections you are working with, which most people are, because often even if the individual objects yeah. aren't there, are boxes, yeah. <laughs> there should therefore be this set of kits that goes up to this weight of stuff, this set of kit that goes up to this weight mm. of stuff. If somebody was to produce that, I think it would be incredibly helpful as a guide where institutions could then go, oh yeah, our stuff is up to this weight, these are the basic things we need so we are mm-hmm. not injuring our yes. staff. Yeah, yeah, that would yeah. actually be really good. That would mm. be an amazing resource, really. I'm not volunteering to write it. <laughs> no. <laughs> but if someone else could, that'd be great. Yeah. Yes, please. please do that. Yeah, yeah. Other things I thought was just flexible working, guys. Mm. Just a thing of like actually being flexible about that stuff because mm-hmm. like, there are days when I can do a 12-hour day. <laughs> 
because I'm full of beans and it's everything's <laughs> fine. But like there are also days when it's like this is a four hour type day because this is not going to work with the amount of pain yeah. I'm in. And like have, building in some flexibility around that would be great. As a freelancer, that's fine mostly yeah. as long as I can manage that with like fellow people that I'm working with mm. or with clients. But in larger teams, that might be more difficult. But I've seen it done. It's not impossible. And the thing is. It's not hard when it suits the needs of an institution. I mean, how many of us have stayed until midnight finishing off an exhibition and yeah. then been told, it's fine, come in late tomorrow? Yeah. That is absolutely the norm in museums. Yes. Yeah, it That's really flexible is. working. It really yes. is. Yeah, now, absolutely. why can't a need for an exhibition or a new gallery to be installed not be the only reason for this? And in fact, it'd be, my energy is such that I'm full of beans today, I'm going to work till midnight three days later you feel flat out you just do maybe two days of checking two hours of checking your emails mm -hmm. what's wrong with that if the work is being done yeah, yeah. Exactly. i mean obviously it's different if you're booked in to do a public facing thing and you're doing a talk or something yet yeah, that needs to be delivered on time yeah of course but but for a lot of our work doesn't necessarily a lot of work our work like doesn't necessarily work like that and if you are working on an object if you've got a scalpel held to something that's precious you don't want to be doing it when you are not at your best. Yeah. No, you definitely don't want to do that when you're tired. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it makes total sense for that yeah. to be the norm within conservation. Thankfully, I think that's one of the things the pandemic has given us is more acceptance of flexible work. Yes, I agree. My museum now does, you know, flexible as in sometimes people work from home, sometimes people don't. And also it benefits everyone. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's this isn't just about disabled people. It, it literally... No, yeah. Anyone. yeah. So, I mean, I dropped two hours a week a few years ago now when, as, I, as well as hearing problems and things, I also have endometriosis, which means mm. sometimes I have really bad pain. At the moment, I'm incredibly well, partly because I dropped two hours a week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On days where I'm not feeling great, I do a shorter day because that's been done as a reasonable adjustment. Mm -hmm. It's kind of not questioned that that's what I do. Yeah. And... It's made a massive difference. And so people say to me, you look really well at the moment. And occasionally I'm thinking, oh, do I? maybe I should go back up to... And I'm like, no, it's no. not worth it. Mm, no. It's yeah. just not the worth it. I, you potentially know. of going back to ill health. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Just not right. And, you know, my quality of life at the moment is back to my, fit for me, healthy quality mm. of life, mm -hmm. which is being Amazing. able to see all of my friends, go to gigs, do all of the fun things, not work... The minute I get home, fall asleep on the sofa and do nothing mm. else, which is also what often people don't see with particularly invisible disabilities. Mm -hmm. They don't see how much downtime you need yeah. outside of work. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, really, it really shocks people. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And people thinking, oh, they're being flaky because they're not willing to meet up on a weekday evening or something. But what they're not seeing is that you get home and you fall asleep for two hours before you then have the energy to wake up and cook dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Which, yeah. That, was, that was my yeah. life for many, many years. Which mm. people, this, that's not normal. Yeah. And the fact that I no longer do that, because I, for a long time, I was sort of resigned to this is what life is. Mm -hmm. Like, this is just what my energy levels are going to be like. And they're only going to diminish over time because <laughs> ah, I'm getting older, whatever. This sort of weird defeatist attitude of, well, this is what this is what real work is. You work these hours, there is no flexibility, and all that means is that as soon as you get home, you fall asleep for two hours, and then you get up and groggily make dinner, and then maybe you sit on the sofa before you fall asleep again. Yeah, what a great evening. life that yeah. is, right? Uh, and I was just like, this, this is what it is now. And then everything changed, because I could do, do my own thing. I could set my own hours. I could 
manage my energy levels in a way that I would previously be un- unable to. And I have energy. I do things now. I have hobbies again. What? <laughs> and the this thing is, is once that cycle is broken, yeah. you then have energy to look after yourself more, to... If you're somebody, I like to swim. I go, I've gone back to the pool. I swim lots. Mm. I do loads of exercise. And that, that you know, when I was little, I danced for hours every week. I That for me is normal for me, is to be able to do a lot of exercise each week. Yeah. Mm. When you have zero energy, because it's sapped with pain or with if your energy is spent dealing with frustrations caused by neurodiversity in a workplace that isn't being facilitated, that kind of thing... You then don't have the energy mm, at all, yeah, to do the stuff that is actually better for your body and your mind outside of work. Yeah, mm. that would recharge you, which then recharges you and then gives you more energy to work. And yeah. it's yeah, yeah, so important to be able to break that. Oh, mm. you told me something interesting about oh god, social model versus medical <laughs> yes. model, yes. and I was like, what does this mean? One of the reasons that I've been thinking about my own disability identity as the in in the museum that i work in we've got an exhibition on a whole uh two-year program on disabled people's rights and uh, it's called nothing about us without us which is one of the key campaigns uh, in um disability rights Mm -hmm. activism which is essentially the, the the um sentiment you know you people won't provide us access our access needs without us being involved is the sort of the the vague description of what that campaign movement uh, means so we're doing a community curated exhibition Um, we've got a, a team of community curators with their various disabilities and they are variously activists in the field and a couple of Weeks ago, last month, we did, um, so they provided, or one of the members provided training, social model of disability training. Mm-hmm. Um, and all members of staff received this training. And it was really interesting because it's, you know, it talked a lot about how we think about disability in society and what it means to be disabled the language that we should use around disabled people mm-hmm. and the the simple message that people are disabled by society and their environments rather than their disabilities people have lots of different opinions about this and i've spoken to people who are disabled as well and and saying well i don't really know that i feel disabled by my environment sometimes i'm just more ill than others and i'm like okay i yeah i get that and it, yeah, you know i think it just that, yeah. it varies for different people but in essence it was communicating mindfulness i guess you know in a way yeah. like think about mm-hmm. these things better think about talking about these things better mm-hmm. it, not just to not insult everyone you meet <laughs> Oh, like, <laughs> oh, that is a good start. Yeah, like don't, yeah, don't say, oh, you don't sound deaf. Yeah, <laughs> to, to everyone who says that they're deaf. Yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to find a way to uh, describe the, the difference between the. So the training was, um, the core of it was the difference between the medical model of disability and the social model of disability. I should point out that this w- training was provided by uh, the GMCDP and because of my neurodiversity, <laughs> I am learning that I cannot do acronyms, which you know, is hilarious <laughs> considering how many acronyms there are in campaigns in general, but also... But also in heritage. Heri- <laughs> yeah, 
So it's Greater Manchester. Coalition for Disabled People. Ah, That's it. Yeah. Nice. Okay. okay. <laughs> nice. So thank you for providing this training. It was very interesting. Um, I mean, I, I just out of curiosity, what's it sort of like the medical model being there's something wrong with you? <laughs> Essentially. And, and the social yeah. thing yeah. being yeah. more that. Yeah. During this training, they provided it in, you know, all the... the <laughs> yeah, fair enough. The sensible descriptions that I won't be able to provide. Um, <laughs> I'm just getting the information. No, but it's interesting to think about, like, how... Sort of who imposes the labels, maybe? Or yeah. Or in, in what way you think about it. That's a fair enough thing. Chloe has notes and everything. I have notes. I'm just... A lot of it was about language that we use, like... Um, oh, tell me about language use. Like, what... Is it like, don't use these words? It's basically... Yeah, basically. But it's... So, for example... Um, disabled and it's this is all changing as well it's one of these like constantly evolving one of the thing yeah and mm -hmm. that's one of the things that sometimes i struggle with but there is a difference because for example disabled people is different from people with disabilities mm, yeah. um i feel maybe in recent years people were thinking that people with disabilities the term mm -hmm. was more respectful than disabled people but the gmcdp argue that Disabled people indicates that the disability is almost imposed on you, rather that rather than people with disabilities mm -hmm. is you are a person. Those yeah, you are a person. You are, first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, okay. So disabled people is considered the preferred term. Um, people with disabilities is often used instead. People believe that by putting ah. the person first, you are focusing on the individual and not but the actually disability. That's not true. Okay. If we look at language through the lens of the social model, this doesn't make sense. Disability ah. is the barriers and discrimination disabled people uh, experience in society. So disabled people do not have disabilities. The dis disability is out in society, not within the disabled person. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So they are disabled. They're inherently able, mm. but they are disabled by ah, what's yeah, going yeah. on around yeah. them. That's a good explanation. I like that. I like that. Um, but that's the, that's the level of complexity that's necessary to talk about because already I didn't really, I wasn't really on board until that was explained to me. Yeah, that's that's exactly yeah? it. Yeah. yeah, the medical model is basically you would go to the doctors and then they would say this yeah. is your illness and you are disabled for these reasons, rather than society are doing this thing. Yeah, which, yeah, exactly. Society you know, or, indicates or society that everything has, has to be up three flights of stairs. Therefore, <laughs> yeah. you're disabled. <laughs> oh my god, that's another bugbear of mine with conservation where it's just like, would just put the conservation studio on the attic with no yeah. lift access yeah. for objects or you yeah exactly what happens if someone breaks a leg aside from the fact that you know like even if it's temporary this is going to be a pain in the butt Completely. i have all sorts of opinions about that yes <laughs> why are we always in such such pressure deadlines why do we need to like the the number of projects i've worked on where you're just lucky that someone hasn't been hit by a bus or caught flu yeah. and the the fact yeah. that you know it's perfectly reasonable to have colleagues and to yourself just wake up one morning and not be able to yeah. bend down or yeah. walk across a room or mm -hmm. that, that that's not that's that shouldn't be a problem except it is if we're working to such tight deadlines on yeah. to such a line where like okay so the only person with a plan of what the exhibition is going to look like can't get out of bed great yeah okay. or there That's is no one. plan of an exhibition and somebody's coming in going oh these three extra objects i know we open tomorrow <laughs> but you yeah. can sort them can't you yeah 
That's right. <laughs> kind of no. Actually, no. <laughs> yeah, it's okay to say no, people. Yes. yes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've that- never had anyone be a dick to me when I've said, I can't do that because of my strain injury, or I can't do that because I'm not physically able to right now. Yeah. I don't have enough spoons for that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I have had people be difficult. Usually, oh. not so much where it's around physical things. And I think this is, again, it's weird. You, While people with visible physical disabilities seem to be the least represented in conservation, actually, when you give somebody a reasonable physical reason for not being able mm. to do something, mm-hmm. they're usually respectful of that. Yes. Mm. Yeah. When it's something to do with not being able to hear or yeah. energy levels or yeah. finding that thing stressful and it being something that somebody neurodiverse is struggling to process, mm. I have difficult. seen much more active, oh, just, it'll be fine, just Stop get on with silly. it, kind of, yeah. 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 yeah, that is true. It doesn't seem to make sense with the, the sort of demographics we see in the profession for mm. those yeah, reasons. Exactly. Because yeah. there's a huge number of neurodiverse conservators. Absolutely. Of, yeah. You know, so... Yeah, it's it's interesting because that is where I've seen the more direct or have heard people telling me about the stuff that they've experienced. Mm, Um, You know, for myself asking for things like um, things to be captioned and people not thinking that's reasonable or not taking that. Yeah. Or not, not taking the time to really understand why or repeatedly having to tell the same people that their faces need to be well lit if they're going to talk to me while they're on a screen or something like that i see of course yeah 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 while conservation might be more i'm gonna say hostile Mm -hmm. hostile to physical disabilities yes because of the what do you mean you can't lift this over your shoulder and run upstairs what do you mean you need a ramp what do you mean you you know need to rest your hands whatever yeah. why wouldn't you be able to reach the cupboards exactly. that we've got <laughs> what do you mean you need up? to be warm exactly that's a, yeah, that's yeah. A very annoying thing yeah <laughs> exactly or do you mean you can't do the pest traps even though most of them are underneath something heavy <laughs> whatever yeah people seem to accept things more if you say i can't do that i've got back problems Maybe it's the permanency, though. Mm-hmm. I've sort of interrupted myself with it, with my thought that maybe it's that if you've got a back injury, then it's the understanding is that it's temporary or, you know, at worst a couple of months and, oh, that person will get back to, you know, full working capacity. But if it's a disability, potentially people are like, oh, great, so you can't just magically do all the things. Yeah, maybe. But I'm not sure. <clears throat> yeah, but I'm, not sure. I'm also wondering if it's things like I feel like people can sort of relate to maybe some amount of pain, but it has to be a pain that people can relate to, like an arm yeah, or a leg. That's true. Yeah. It can't be my insides are hurting. Like it's <laughs> it yeah. can't be that because mm-hmm. then that's gender specific or it has to be a lived experience sort of yeah, thing. But if yeah, it's yeah. something like I've really busted my hand yes. or my my back is awful today. There's a certain amount there of people might know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's yeah. enough of a trigger point that they can be respectful for a time. Yeah. Even if they don't realise that for you, that's forever. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Versus for them, it's for six weeks. Yeah. 
And I think a lot of that is around the energy stuff as well. I think actually I wonder whether COVID will have changed that because for a lot of people, mm-hmm. even when they've recovered quite quickly after COVID, they've had no energy for six yes. weeks or so. Yeah. And that to me is very similar to that lack of energy you have when you're in chronic pain. Yeah. Yeah. Where you are you might have enough energy to go back to work, but you are kaput for hours afterwards. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, for anybody who's never experienced that kind of lack of energy from chronic illness, chronic pain, or from just having to process a lot of stuff, it's very, very similar to that feeling. Yeah. Mm. And I wonder whether they'll become a bit more empathy over that because a lot of people have Mm -hmm. experienced it now. Yeah, that's true. I don't think we've had that mass experience of it before. That's probably true, actually. And a lot lot of people are still contending with long COVID in Mm -hmm. terms of, you know, long-term effects Mm -hmm. on energy Mm -hmm. levels and Mm -hmm. a lot of other things. Uh, so I think we have to have a more empathetic outlook as a society because there's, there's just more of us now. Well, Language is changing as well, though, isn't yeah. it? Because now we would more commonly come across the word fatigue, even if you don't sort of have a you know chronic fatigue mm-hmm. or long COVID or something, you could say at work, I'm sorry, I'm, I have fatigue today or whatever, I'm suffering from this today. Mm-hmm. And that is very distinct from I'm really tired today. Because people assume, oh, you should have gone up, gone gone to bed earlier, or you, <laughs> yeah, you, you're dying. Have another shit. cup of coffee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Have another cup of coffee. Power yeah. through. <laughs> Here's a Red Bull. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and actually, fatigue's a really good. It's not a term I usually use, but you're right because for a lot of people, particularly people who are usually well and fit, mm. tired for them is when they've had a late night, have partied a bit too hard, and often therefore it's combined with whatever they've imbibed in the process (laughs) Um, and not really a comprehension of that kind of fundamental lack of energy Mm. it's a completely different feeling yeah yeah it's you know it's it's so they're so far removed from each other that most people just have no comprehension of what the other one is yeah it is a misnomer to call it tired for a lot of people Mm -hmm. because if you say tired most people think you need some more sleep Yeah. yeah 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 I was sort of wondering if we if we wanted to talk about disability in collections because we're not yes very, not very Ooh. well represented yeah. in yeah, museum yeah, yeah, collections yeah, yeah. and heritage situations. <laughs> well, can we aside from workforce, aside you know? from work, yeah. So we've mainly focused on workforce, haven't we? Because that's that's where the that's where we're at. that's where we, it came yeah. from. The idea of yeah. doing it, and this and I think I where sh- a lot of the frustrations are. Exactly, yeah. yeah, and possibly the the sort of workplace tensions potentially mm-hmm. as well. And I think we came up with this episode um, after this episode topic after the uh, Conservation Matters Northwest when somebody I know the name, but I haven't asked permission to, to discuss Fair. it. So, Fair. Uh, did a really good talk about how she struggled. Mm-hmm. Uh, during COVID, mm-hmm. because of um, hearing impairment, and it was a you know cannot cannot, and nobody was giving. Oh, it was them an amazing talk. Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic, and another really good example actually of where people don't know each other with yeah. profession profession because yeah. I didn't know that person, yeah. and it totally mirrored my frustrations. Yeah, and it was so nice to have that moment of connection of. This is my world as well at the moment. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. is this to sort of think about the face masks covering up faces so you can't lip read? And all the online stuff and just mm. basically 
nothing's captioned yeah and how disabled you were by society because Mm -hmm. of that yeah because where i said a lot of the time for my deafness i don't think about it unless i'm doing a ticky box or at least i didn't Mm -hmm. most of the time and then along comes everybody being both needing to wear masks and working from screens most of the time Mm. and suddenly it's a massive disability yeah yeah you know i can't buy something in a shop because i can't hear what somebody's telling me at the till i can't Mm. order in a restaurant obviously i can if there's somebody with me and eventually i muddle through because thankfully i'm confident and will make it work Mm -hmm. but it means you have to rely on someone else as well relying on somebody else and you're feeling like you're stupid because you're not understanding what people are saying Mm -hmm. and then that has an impact on how you're feeling about yourself Mm -hmm. yeah it's horrendous yeah so yeah the importance of that kind of Mm. that sharing and yeah demonstrating the impact to people at a conservation conference is so important yeah yeah it was yeah. brilliant wasn't it was it? brilliant shall we say it was it it was claire dean yes you're great thank claire you claire dean. thank Aww. you <laughs> but yeah we i imagine the science museum has quite a bit of collection in fact i know the science museum has quite a bit of things like prosthetics and mm-hmm. um you know the welcome aids yeah the, it, there was the welcome yeah, element yeah. of the science museum store um but during the exhibition, nothing about us without us exhibition at my museum, we searched the collection mm-hmm. for things, and there was very little. Yeah, yeah. and that's really interesting uh, for a campaign museum. Yeah, that's true. Really, really interesting. I think there's two things in that. There's one. There's very little physical stuff, mm. as in you know, crutches, hearing aids, whatever the thing yeah. may be. There's also, and this is where historically society haven't been very open and accepting and haven't felt the ability to be so. Mm. And also there's been a lack of recognition of things previously. So it's not just about the stuff, it's about the people that stuff belong to. Mm -hmm. Because while there might not be those objects, there certainly will be paintings that were owned by somebody, somebody with whatever the disability Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of our Egyptology collections at Bolton came into the museum because vanny barlow who wore calipers oh Uh, wow yeah yeah amazing disabled woman who Mm. trekked over egypt and all sorts of Mm -hmm. stuff Mm. that's a massively important bit of disability history there's going to be loads of museums particularly you know medical care was worse in the past we're going to be more people with untreated disabilities that impacted them more day to day than Mm. we get impacted now by things It's not recognised. How often in an art gallery or wherever do you read a label that talks about what that person lived with? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Very yeah, rare. you're more likely to get the sort of this person owned this company and this is where they got their wealth. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. End so, of. This was paid for by a wealthy patron. Yeah, and yeah. I think in other areas of diversity and inclusion, some mm. of that work is being done very actively by museums and institutions now. So, for example, when we're looking at a queer community. You quite often mm. see where people have been doing that research yeah. Yeah. and will say, yeah. oh, this person was part of this friendship group. We now know this. Mm-hmm. While we might not have a written bit of evidence, we can, you know... Infer s- heavily that. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe a bit of that could be done around disability because yeah. there yeah, will yeah. be evidence there. Yeah, that's absolutely. such a good point. And, you know, that true. thing of seeing yourself in a space and therefore feeling safe to out yourself in that space yeah. of whatever the thing is... Mm will help so you know if you're a conservator that has the privilege to work on something that was if i was working on something that was owned or 
created by a deaf person i would feel a stronger connection towards it yeah yeah i get definitely that. but yeah. that knowledge often isn't there no yeah so yeah more phds needed yeah definitely definitely yeah it's so interesting because i'm trying to think of if there's because you know i've mostly worked in social history collections and industrial collections and you'd think there'd be more stuff in there but i'm trying to think there would have been maybe a prosthetic arm from a say world war soldier you know mm-hmm. someone who lost a limb mm. uh a, a cane often canes yeah, but canes. usually from rich people yeah uh, rich people canes <laughs> and uh, often to do with old age rather yes, than as opposed to someone who will leave you stolen as a as a young person yeah, yeah. quite slim yeah. pickings there i suppose that the ones that spring to mind of what i've seen in my museum we've got um michael foot's cane because he broke his foot mm. and then it was never you know he used a cane after that yeah, yeah. and i mean it's not communicated as disability it's just this this man was famous for walking on with a cane the exhibition that i've seen that has mainly communicated disability of a, of a famous person has been the frida Kahlo exhibition oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. because sure, yeah. she's a very famous disabled yeah, yeah. person exactly yeah. and her artwork was about disability mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was a progression of illness throughout her life yeah. which shaped her life yeah and then ended her life and all of the prosthetics and all of that artwork that came out of it was so much part of her identity. There doesn't seem to be any sort of this amazing entrepreneur also they were disabled. No. Yeah, it's exactly. weird. It's not, it has yeah. to be part of the story yeah. in yeah. order to communicate it. Yeah. We just don't have that. I mean, we have a sculpture, I can't remember the name, which is driving me a bit potty, at work. <laughs> and not long after I started, there was some discussion about should it be touched or shouldn't it? Ah. And sort of at the core of conservation. And it's this very tactile, carved stone object. And it makes you want to touch it. Mm. Mm. And I did some looking into it and did some... It was by a blind sculptor who had wow. designed them to be touched. So and the point is to touch it. The whole point it. is to oh. touch it. And yeah. yes, that's yeah, yeah. going to get dirtier. Yeah. Yes, there may be conservation implications to that. Yeah. But it's the point. But that's the point. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, if that ha- knowledge hadn't been there about that person, now I was lucky that the knowledge was there and you could mm-hmm. find it quite yeah. easily. Yeah, yeah. If it hadn't been, the whole point of that artwork would have been lost. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's nice to look at, but it, it what it makes you want to do is reach for mm. it. And that was yeah. the whole purpose. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah you do come across disability in collections it does mm-hmm. tend to have a sort of freak show aspect mm. to it yeah rather than a this is human beings with disabilities who you yeah. know like shall we talk a bit about disabled visitors yes let's because that's the one thing that i feel like museums are doing quite okay on is yeah actually being arguably mm. better with access for visitors mm-hmm. than for staff mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of across actually, the board, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can certainly <laughs> speak they, for my museum in that respect. Presumably, because yeah, they actually. can get more shit for it uh, if they're not. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah. Publicly, they can be more shamed if it's like I came to this. Yeah. Uh, let's say National Trust property, and they didn't have a ramp like that. Then yeah, that would yeah, be an outrage. Real, yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to I work for this National Trust property, and, they, <laughs> and they I don't think have the a thing lift. is, 
it should be equally accepted to have a rant about that not being fair. Absolutely. But part of where we're talking about the barriers to employment is you are then fearful that you will be seen as the difficult person Mm -hmm. that causes the issue, that raises the issues and makes an organisation pay for stuff. Yeah. When we know nobody's got any money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Whereas when it's a member of the public other members of the public are brilliant you've made them pay i can now go there too yeah yeah. Exactly. what we don't see within the workforce is brilliant you've made them pay now i can work there too mm. yes exactly. and the attitude should be the same yeah it really should yeah. be yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah we have recently had um oh what was it called an access review i think mm-hmm. yeah there's an we're doing an awful lot of access review stuff and you know this reviewer came around and looked at things like you know barrier height and door type of doors and barrier color and the loos and the floor surface and all of the things light levels and stuff mm-hmm. which is interesting and I mm-hmm. want to talk about that yeah. and it's it's something that you can do and it's they they you know they don't say ooh you slap on the wrist you're bad they'll say these are the things you can do to improve and yeah that's you know then you know what you may need to apply for funding to achieve that it's sort of guided quite a lot of things of what we're doing in our exhibition about disability because that's one of the things we you know we want to the the whole thing is being designed based on being as accessible as possible so Mm. there's large format labels there's things at um, accessible heights Mm -hmm. there's you know uh, various other things I think I can't remember what we're doing about barriers but interestingly I know that our exhibition officer has not been able to find a barrier type that conforms with the sort of accessible requirements Um, and I think off the top of my head I think it's something about height it's something about the number of say by barriers I'm talking about uh, uh, metal stands short metal stands with a elastic string rope I think it's considered best practice to have two ropes and there's no option for that Um, rope colour is we use grey and that's not ideal because it's not contrasting but there isn't another option for mm-hmm. something something oh so i think there's more you know in terms of provision for equipment that you can buy that mm. work needs to be done yeah. yeah but it's just it's really interesting during the process of um working with the community curators actually i did some sort of object handling working with object object handling training with them this is how you would do it and this is I encourage you to try if you are comfortable to mm-hmm. all of that and one of the questions one of them asked was um, in the conservation studio they said it's very bright in here mm-hmm. why is it okay for it to be bright in here but it can't be bright in the galleries mm-hmm. can we make it brighter in the galleries and so I started thinking basically about what would we need to do obviously we can't increase the light levels drastically across the board but I was thinking could we do like brighter days brighter mornings on you know one day a month you increase the light levels by 50 50 lakhs that's a pretty common yeah thing, to be honest. oh is it as far as i've seen yeah it's quite common to have things like quiet mornings so you're yes open we have early. that yeah yeah yeah, yeah for yeah. example but also um high visibility uh days and that can be an afternoon where everything's extra bright, for mm-hmm. example, uh, um, so that you know, like a- the aging population yes. can see what's on display. Because <laughs> yeah. frankly, it's not just about disabled no. people; it's about 
you know, like eyesight declines throughout mm-hmm. our lives. Mm-hmm. That's just how it is. Yeah. I think it's also a bit about an acceptance that no one space is going to be accessible to everybody. And spaces that may be not accessible, for example, it's a dark space that either for the collections or for how you've chosen does this mm-hmm. play it, mm-hmm. there's some questions as to why you might make those decisions. A dark, you could make brighter temporarily. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we really looked at at Bolton when we were redoing the Egyptology mm. gallery spaces was looking at there always being somewhere that each person should be able to access. Oh, that's nice. Mm. That's a good, that's yeah. a good compromise, yeah. So, and then made it so that the collections that would be too sensitive in one space mm-hmm. weren't in that space or were in the other. Mm-hmm. And it does mean that you choose not to have some of that type of thing in that yeah. space. yeah. But if that means that that whole space is accessible to that type of person, then they always know there's a bit of it that they love, that they can go mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. feel quiet and calm in because it's dark and quiet, mm. or feel like they're really happy because it's bright and lots of stuff going on. Mm, yeah. That balance for people, I think that's, for me, that's one of the things that's important is for each person to feel included. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the other things we've tried to do a bit is make it known when we've had people who make themselves known to us that if there's somebody who has sight problems that wants to be able to touch more Mm -hmm. we can do some tailored touch tools for people yeah so it's about doing it so that acknowledging the fact that by the nature of museums a lot of things if you're going to not have them being at risk of theft Mm -hmm. or vandalism you Mm. want to protect them behind barriers that's the nature of those types of collections yeah obviously there are arguments against it you could just go well everybody should be allowed to touch everything they're owned by the public but they might only last a week if you had a case full of jewelry that everybody yeah. could touch at all times you're going to have no jewelry left yeah so it's a bit you know there needs yeah. to be a bit of, bit of a kind of balance there with mm. things and i think the the places that do it really well are the places that manage to make it so that you can go in and even if there's no staff around everybody's off sick whatever the thing is Mm. and you're in there by yourself and you can't access any of the interpretation for you still have an experience that you can engage with Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's where as conservators we need to be thinking around how we're treating objects are we making a big fuss to the curators going nobody can touch any of this stuff this thing must be under such dark light Mm -hmm. does it really need to be or could we choose that we put in a bit more effort to swap one item over more often yeah Yeah. that facilitates something being better lit Mm -hmm. and that takes a bit more of our time and do we then advocate for that being part of our core role yeah because I understand that a lot of these things mean that you're having to take a bit more time. And with the lack of staffing, a lot mm. of the time people are wanting to say, OK, we're not touching this gallery for another 10 years. Mm-hmm. But actually, if that means that then you're not meeting the needs of your public. What good is that? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I think that's where it's important for conservators to really understand what those things are so that we can advocate for why we spend the time to do the things in a different mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you're interested in touchy-feely topics and a whole episode about whole that. episode on it and i'm traditionally more anti-touch than i know you are pirouette and jenny <laughs> <laughs> who are like let's just rub visitors faces on it <laughs> not really what we're doing but maybe never yeah. yeah 
(laughs) (laughs) So CPD and the pandemic. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have heard from a lot of private conservators is how they have found it much easier to do their CPD because so much has been online and they've therefore been able to listen to things and attend conferences. Yeah. Has that been worse for For you? For me, it has been the complete opposite. I've felt completely isolated because it's just not accessible to me. And if I am doing something online... It requires 150% of my attention. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so I would never choose, unless it's so interesting and it's the only way it's being done and I desperately Mm -hmm. want to hear it, to attend a conference online or a training session. I have done a few because that's been Mm. the only thing available. Mm. But for me, it's been the complete opposite. I've felt like I've had three years of not having anything. Yeah. And there will be other people with hearing problems, other people whose neurodiversity finds it makes it hard for them to mm. pay focus on the screen. For that yeah, exactly. Time, mm. yeah. Who feel the same? Yeah. yeah, that is a really good point. Oh, that's it's it's a spaghetti mess, isn't it? Of, <laughs> of yeah. different accessibility needs. Absolutely. Because I've found it's been fantastic because I struggle to sit in a in a lecture theatre and if I'm listening to it I can be yeah I can I can be doing my conservation Mm. I can be listening into stuff it's Mm. not even for me about whether or not I can get there obviously there's an element of that and anxiety and money and all of that Mm. but even if it was captioned you'd have to constantly be watching the captions yeah yeah absolutely so your ideal would be uh, or well I suppose the ideal for lots of people actually isn't it that you'd have something uh, provided on Zoom, but held in person. Yes, yeah. every time for me. Yeah. And the prob- the massive problem with it is, for m- the vast majority of people, me included, if I can't attend something that's in person mm. that I must be at, mm. the absolute worst for accessibility is hybrid. Oh. Because most of the time, when something is an in-person thing that mm-hmm. people then also do online a few organizations are very very good at it mm. museum next being one they're very yeah. good at the sort of tech side but for a lot it's almost like the making it online is then the secondary it's the backup yes. thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and there isn't captioning funded there isn't um it's not really clear sound mm. and all of that so I, I think if something is hybrid, it needs to absolutely be treated as if it's just online quality yeah. of yeah. recording and yeah, everything. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, for me, I, I, I'm just totally excluded. If something's just online, that's it. I lose accessibility to those things. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But you, it, that means that it's an excellent time to mention to people that don't give up on having things in person because, yes. in fact, they are still really important. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. really important. Because yeah. yeah. I feel like people sort of went like, oh, if I don't want to do webinars, then I'm doomed, basically, like the fact that anyone who lives rurally for example uh like just doesn't have the broadband to be able to do yeah. a presentation to 100 people it doesn't yeah. matter like they the bandwidth's not there yeah um but equally stuff that is just online or can be both ideally in my world it's far more accessible for a lot of people for whom lying in their bed while they attend the conference it actually means they yeah. focus more and they learn yeah. more because yeah. their pain is such they can't sit in a seat that's different to their yeah. specialist seat that's been bought for where they work yeah yeah mm. absolutely i'm gonna go with the takeaway is do a bit of both yeah <laughs> yeah do absolutely. both and, and accept it different sort of requirements yeah the requirements are different for from those that of the people organizing it and similarly to where i said museums need to have a bit of everything within mm. the galleries 
I don't expect to be able to access every single training thing. Mm. But, for example, if it's disaster response training, there might be a big conference that's online only yeah. that I can't, I can't access. But at some point, there needs to be some training yeah. Yeah. that is yeah. in person of some sort, because otherwise I would never get be trained on yeah. that thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that's the message that needs to go to people that mm. are producing training. It's not that there has to be this massive expense and that everything is accessible to everybody. Mm. It's that within the package of things mm. that they create for people, yeah. something ought to be accessible to each type of person. Yeah. yeah. So what would you like to talk about? Because you said that there was a, what was it, AIC disability document that's just yeah. come out. I haven't heard of any of this because I'm bad at keeping up to date with things. Well, the hilarious thing is that I don't know how recent it is because I'm bad at paying attention sometimes. But I did. <laughs> but it was a recent tweet anyway that right. they have this accessibility in conservation report. So this is the American Institute uh, for Conservation, mm-hmm. um, which is their survey results from what looks to be a 2021 survey that they did. Oh, recent then, recent, recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not like this isn't like outdated or anything. But yeah, I'm not sure when the actual report came out because I only just saw the tweet about it and it was in the last few weeks. I sort of feel like it's definitely after we'd had this talk with Purette that I was like, oh, that would have been nice to talk about. But (laughs) And then hence why it's sort of shoehorned in as an extra bit after our talk with Purette. What do you mean shoehorned? It's, a, it's an additional seamlessly feature. edited <laughs> of course um, no one will notice it's fine yeah because no one will notice that we're no longer on a boat with Priet and that the sound cats. quality is completely different and there's no ducks in the background there's no ducks yeah there is very a dog now that's true uh, but he doesn't make duck noises which is slightly disappointing but, uh, so the survey seems to have been in 2021 and just like looking through the like uh, executive summary, it seems like it was distributed to AIC members and allied professionals. Uh, there were 558 complete responses. And oh, that's pretty good. 29% identified as having a disability or disabilities, much higher than certainly our reported 2% over here. Um, In 2013, absolutely, yes. yeah. Uh, they do say that a very small percentage of respondents had visible disabilities, so it's still mostly hidden okay. or uh, in uh, or unseen disabilities. Yeah, forty-one percent of the people who identified as having disabilities reported feeling understood and supported by colleagues. That's both higher than I expected and lower than is desired, because that still means that the majority are not supported. Or understood. Yeah, I think when you first said that, I was like, oh, hey, do you feel supported? Oh, wait, it's only 41%. Mm. I know, I had the same reaction when I was like, oh, I expected that to be lower. That's terrible that I expected it to be lower. That's not good. That's a terrible expectation. They, they sort of uh, pulled out four major areas of sort of improvement here for maybe future focuses for their equity and inclusion committee and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, so that's lack of awareness of existing resources. So many people are not aware of existing resources that may help create more accessible opportunities and spaces, including uh, including yeah. information that's already on the AIC webpages, which is interesting. So people just don't know where to look. Is um, it because it's hard to find? Yeah, and maybe if you have no idea that they exist at all, why would you why know would to look? You look? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, then we have lack of awareness of challenges for colleagues with disabilities. So those who identify as not having disabilities are neither fully aware of the challenges faced by their colleagues, nor the number of AIC members who identify as having disabilities. I mean, it was a higher number than I thought. So that is mm. is pretty striking. Um, but I mean, I think it's pretty common for um, people without disabilities to sort of be blissfully unaware. <laughs> Yeah. In a way that's not desirable, obviously. It's not desirable. But that's one of the reasons that we're doing this this episode is that awareness. the next one was hybrid and virtual events provide opportunities for greater accessibility for members with disabilities. Yes, yeah, so that's that's one that yeah. you know we have also noticed over the course mm-hmm. of the pandemic. Uh, and it's possible that some of these practices could be incorporated to make in-person events more accessible for the field. Yeah, like, that's like a no-brainer. And then the last one was people with disabilities need to feel heard and their challenges recognized even if they cannot be fully addressed, which, you know, I think that's fair. Maybe reason number two of doing this episode. So looking through this, um, there are some interesting sort of um, things to pick out. Obviously, 71% said that they do not identify as disabled. So Mm. it's still pretty able-bodied, but I don't know enough about American demographics to know whether that's representative of the overall population or not. I have no idea. Um, Uh, The breakdown of what types of disabilities people felt they had were things like 21.4% said chronic health condition, 20.3% said psychological condition. Oh, psychological condition. That's That's a phrase, isn't it? Which I guess is what we would term mental health uh oh yes and then the autism spectrum disorder there was a footnote about that maybe it should have been bundled in with neurological conditions and honestly this is probably what we now call neurodiversity over here but it's just different uh, different yeah. ter- terminology i think mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's you know fair enough uh, quite a lot of variety here uh, so you had people hard of hearing people with uh uh, vision impairments, learning disabilities, ADHD got a special category, Woo-hoo. 8%. That is much lower than I thought it would be. And then 9.4% said they have physical mobility uh, issues, which is sort of higher than I thought, but also not because I also don't know what sort of age range we're talking about here. Yeah. How long have you had a disability was an interesting question. Uh, 29.4% said born with. 43.7 said develop before current career and 26.9% said developed after pursuing current career. We'll link to this in the show notes so that you can read the report yourselves. Disability awareness and support is the next category. Oh, I think this one deals with uh, whether or not people have disclosed their disabilities to the supervisor or employer. So here we've got 16% saying did not feel it was necessary. 11.3% said accommodations could be made without disclosure. 20% said Ooh. they were uncomfortable sharing. 22% uh, 22% concerns that the supervisor will see me as less capable. That's kind of... Oh, man, that's disappointing. 3.3% fear of harassment. And then uh, 14.7% said they're concerned that it would not remain privileged information, uh, which you know is also sucky. Horrible to have to worry about that. The next one is about accessibility issues in the classroom or workplace. The runaway leader here with 68% is the need for a flexible schedule. Again, flexible oh, wow. working conditions. That's a whole thing. So challenges in accessing conservation resources. There seems to be quite a spread here, but the biggest category 
by 39% is conferences. So I'm guessing that's accessibility issues at conferences, mm. which does seem to come up a fair bit. 26.8% uh, say the same, same thing about webinars and 34.1% uh. about lectures. Yeah, just in general, it seems like people are really struggling in uh, CPD and training in terms of provisions, which sucks. That's really awful. I mean, it wow. sort of reminds me because something I really wanted to include in this episode was some great stuff about um, disability in the museum workforce that they did at the museum's mm. conference this year. However, the disability session was not one that was streamed online. So it was not accessible to people who were not there in person. And what? That was not made clear beforehand. And it really annoyed me because it meant that I really missed out. But there you go. I just don't get uh, to see that. Because I'm not yeah. there, which will also be the case for other disabled people. So it's just like, did you just make our session unavailable? <laughs> Was that not a bit shit? Anyway, that's definitely my <laughs> feedback for that. Oh, they have something about age range here. Nice. Okay, let's figure let's figure this out. The smallest group is 14% people between 18 and 25. That's sort of what I would expect, to be honest. Mm -hmm. The next group up is 25%. They are 45 to 54. And after that, it's pretty equal between all of the other age groups. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so like mid-30s for all of them, basically. Uh, so, that, yeah, it's, it's pretty well represented in terms, of, mm. in terms of ages. I think it's always good to see more research on this more numbers uh because mm -hmm. you know we we all need to know more about this stuff um yeah, yeah. more about each other yeah dear jane is it necessary to undertake an accreditation assessment in order to have a career in conservation love from k Thank you very much for your inquiry via the C word. Luckily, we have your contact details, so I was able to find out a little bit more about your inquiry. For those of you who are not in the UK, accreditation is a professional um, recognition of your competence that is arranged via the professional body, via ICON, and it follows quite an extensive reporting of your achievements. And then this is confirmed via professional assessment, including site visits. So it's quite a high standard of competence. It's quite a reasonably high threshold that you have to pass. And it's no small task to undertake as well as you have to pay a significant fee. So it is a big deal. So I understand entirely, you know, the question, do I have to do this? And I can see that from the outset, accreditation looks like an intimidating fact. However, I did find out in your workplace, you're not the highest up in your role and that other roles that you might want to get in the future may well look for accreditation. I'm afraid that rather gets me to a point where I would encourage you to do it. Obviously, no one needs to do accreditation. People have got through their careers without doing accreditation. That's absolutely doable. But I think that there are two issues with accreditation. The first is what you get personally and the other is what we get as a profession. So let's do the sort of highfalutin stuff, the profession first. If we as a profession want to improve salaries, recognition, terms and conditions and things like that, there are a couple of things that we can do. One of which I think is being able to protect the term to some extent, the conservator. So that where people want to employ a conservator and advertise for a conservator, then 
we as the profession could say that role isn't paid enough and encourage people not to apply. But also we as a profession can say that this is what a good conservator is. So, you know, if you try to undercut a conservation role by bringing in someone with, you know, no qualifications or experience and no training, then we can say, well, this is not really a conservator. And to that effect, we have tried to persuade a lot of organisations, particularly in the public sector, to identify accreditation as a desirable or essential characteristic, especially for more senior roles. So then that takes us to the second question. Do you ever want to go for one of the kinds of jobs where accreditation is required? And uh, we did have a little bit of an exchange before I recorded this, and I think you would. So I think you just need to have a look at that accreditation. Of course, the official advice is get on the pathway. You sign up, you pay a pathway membership, and you are given support. What I would say is that for many, uh, many conservators... Sitting down and writing text is hard to do. So although they do great work, writing it is hard to do. I think that writing for accreditation can feel really intimidating to start with because there's lots of letters and numbers and things to remember. And you can end up trying to write to fit the accreditation standard. And I would honestly say, if you're a passionate conservator, if you've got a project that you've done recently that you really loved, why don't you just sit down and write down what you did? and how you would evidence them. So, you know, how did you um, assess this object and work out how it was made? How did you contact the owners? How did you record your thoughts? What options did you consider? Did you think of different ways of doing this? Did you do any additional research either into options for materials or perhaps to find out a little bit more about how it was made or who it was used for? Did you go and meet an exhibition person to find out how it was going to be displayed? Did you read records of either similar treatments or find out about similar things? You're bound to have done some of that. So think about all that and and capture that. If you are lucky enough and well-organised, enough and I would encourage everyone to do this but if you do keep a lab diary then the chances are a lot of that will be in there. So just really capture those thoughts and write down and explain what you did all the way through to how you made sure it was going to be all right into the future. Did you give some advice to the owner? That sort of thing. Once you've written that first project up just then look at the standards again, go through them and at that point say how many of the standards is this covered? And perhaps when you're looking at one of the standards you might think oh I did that as well. I did do some communication with the public. I did a little blog. And at that point, you can add that into your text. So it's a bit like eating an elephant. It's one mouthful at a time. I would encourage you to do it. I know it's huge. Try not to think about where you've got to be in the end. Try to just think about one project, one description and see what you've done then. You may not need it. That's absolutely the case. But there's nothing worse than your dream job coming up and then it's requiring accreditation and you can't get to it. If if you think that might come up in your life, then don't let that happen. Don't let your, your opportunities be cut off for you before you get there. So, yes, you can definitely get through your career without accreditation. Should you? It's entirely up to you. But can you? Yes, you definitely can. And if you want it, then I'm sure you can do it. And if you need any help, ask a friend, ask a colleague. There'll be lots of people out there who will help you get through. That's me, over and out. Today I'm reviewing the Rutledge Companion to Art and Disability, edited by Kerry Watson and Timothy W. Hiles. This is a 2022 Rutledge publication, as you may have gathered from the title. This book is sort of aimed at scholars and students of museum studies, so it is a little bit on the academic side. 
which I sort of wasn't in the mood for when I was reading this, so that's a bit unfortunate. But the good news is it got better. The contents are divided into three parts, exploring different themes. Part one is about historical and religious framings of art and disability, and covers a remarkable uh, range of different topics and also geographical locations. You know, it's anything from Ecuador to uh, Greece, uh, China, India, all sorts of places, uh, and all sorts of time periods. So there's a bit of archaeology and a bit of art history, and it's a really good mix. We get to explore preconceptions around bodily depictions, Greek thoughts on mental health, whether things like blindness can be a punishment or a gift. And here it sort of ties in with the sort of death gain things that Purette talked about earlier in the episode, because it's sort of about whether you can gain other senses if you lose one and that sort of thing. We explore Japanese depictions of health conditions and the sort of social stigma that could be attached to that. What survived in sculpture versus literature from ancient India. Icons depicting healing amongst Italian Christian art. A lot of good stuff about the bodies of women and the pain of women, which I thought was just really interesting as a woman with chronic pain. Slightly harrowing were the sort of Chinese medical oil portraits uh, that were explored in one chapter. Um, And yeah, just in general, there was some really good stuff covered here. I would say that uh, some of these could have done with a bit of a content warning because some of these are really hard to read as a disabled person. Um, Some of them in terms of the sort of bodily harm that's being described, for example, punishing people by destroying their eyes for example that was very difficult to read um as a human being and also as someone with just sight loss in the family um that that was a lot and yeah some of these are really gruesome and they explore gruesome parts of humanity uh not disability itself but just how it's been treated in the past sometimes and how people may have ended up with disabilities so some of them are difficult um but Uh, I would say that most of them are really interesting and, yeah, well worth a read, actually. Part two is about ableism and disableism. So here we are exploring ideas around the body made whole in a sort of judgment day or resurrection of the dead scenario in in Christian iconography. Um, We've got Spanish portraits of bodily curiosities we have a chapter exploring the effects of syphilis and the act of collecting. We've got ableist visual culture in monuments and uh, the act of creating memorials around people with disabilities, but maybe not portraying it as such. And we even go into film and depictions of pain. It's actually a super broad uh, approach to art, which I really appreciate. I probably could have done with seeing some video games in here, actually, but uh, you can't have everything. Um, My favourite in this section was probably a chapter on dwarfism in Italy and how actually it's it's not disability. Sort of challenging the preconception that uh, dwarfism was disability and sort of reframing that bit of history and notions that we have around uh, dwarfism in, in other times. And I thought that was super interesting. Part three is called uh, Towards 
anesthetics of disability. And honestly, this was a little bit beyond me, above my head. It's a bit too art historian for me. Uh, sorry, guys. However, I did really enjoy the chapter on prosthetics and imagination. That was an amazing little history lesson and look to the future. Uh, I enjoyed the sign language in music videos chapter and uh, also the one about autism as ability rather than disability in relation to art, but just in general as well. And I quite liked those. Uh, I didn't really get part three as much as I would have liked, but I suppose it goes back to just what we were saying about museums. Not everyone can enjoy every bit of a museum and not everyone will enjoy every bit about a book. Those chapters weren't bad, they just weren't for me. But yeah, if you're interested in disability studies and, and you're into art in a wide variety of forms, then you should have a look at this book. It's a good edition and I'm glad that I got to read it. It was sometimes difficult to read it as a disabled person, but it was interesting and an eye-opener for many different things. No pun intended. I've been reading the ebook version for this review, which is available for $35.99 of your best British pounds from the publisher's website, or as a hardback for £190. I don't know if this is available in any other accessible formats like large print or an audiobook or anything like that. Uh, you'd have to ask the publishers. Um, but it has 464 pages and black and white illustrations throughout. Good morning. I am speaking to you from atop a ladder um, in the new exhibition at the People's History Museum called Nothing About Us Without Us. Um, and it's an exhibition on the fight for disabled people's rights in the UK. Um, and because it's so relevant to the episode that you've just listened to, I wanted to just, I suppose, whilst I'm... <laughs> up the ladder doing the lighting for the exhibition have a quick chat about what it is uh, the exhibition's about really um and oh hello beth hello, hello. i'm just doing some recording for uh <laughs> the episode on disability <laughs> how's that going halfway up the ladder uh, well, it's good it's good uh so we're keeping all the lights at what's up sorry uh, I was just going to ask your opinions on the little amount I've done and whether I just... Yes, do that. Waste yeah, yeah. So the first thing to say about the exhibition, I suppose, is that we've been... We've tried with um, liaising with community curator group and the community steering group. We've tried to do quite as well as much as we can on improving the access to the exhibition um why isn't this light working um so basically just making sure as many people can see it as possible um the relevance to lighting uh, obviously you know we've been doing things like having qr codes so that people can access information in different formats we've had large really large text labels um which is interesting challenge for fitting them in cases and things as you can imagine um putting things at appropriate heights um for different visitors and 
Um, the main relevance for what I'm doing right now is obviously lighting levels. Um, and because of object safety and the fact that we've got loads of open display textiles, loads of different modern materials, we are keeping the lighting levels for the most part at 50 lux. Um, however, we do have cleaning lights that I'm intending to set up to appropriately light the space as well. Each individual light in our system needs to be adjusted individually and it takes an absolute age. So we can't do like, you know, 150 lux mornings, for example, because I can't change all the lights uh, for just one morning and all, all the way again, because it's, it's just impossible. But I could potentially, if all of the lenders agree, have lighting uh increased by having the cleaning lights on specific spaces so we're going to try that but for now i'm just doing the, the f first sweep of come on it's not working here we go uh, the first sweep of lights um at the normal levels so that's why i'm up and down ladders but i thought it'd be nice to take the opportunity to chat about each of the individual things that I'm lighting. So this one I'm up to now is um, a large white banner with black and white text um, with red in felt and stitching. So it's stitched applied work felt banner and it reads Not Dead Yet UK. Um, and Not Dead Yet is the campaign for um well against assisted suicide um and the slogan along the top says we need support to live not assistance to die um and i found that really interesting because i've heard so much so many campaigns about assisted um assisted dying for people who decide to but you don't we haven't heard so much about the um campaign against that so i think just, just think that's really interesting uh and the next one i'm going to light the next object i'm going to light is going to be the bust of the bronze bust of francis uh, magin founder of the british deaf association uh 1890 he's magnificent he's bronze uh, so lucy branch will be very happy um and he's got a fantastic moustache. So I'm now lighting the uh, Nothing About Us Without Us Deepak Manchester banner, um, which is an amazing hand-painted and hand-spray-painted banner in white cotton. Deepak stands for Disabled People Against Cuts, um, and it's in the exhibition we've put it behind several placards about cuts and the danger of those um so welfare this is welfare cuts the danger of those to disabled people so for example we've got tory cuts kill disabled people on one placard and um one that reads i am not worthless nor a drain on society please stop a systematic killing of vulnerable people hashtag human catastrophe uh, can't really argue with that, can you? And it's polite, so, what can, you know, <laughs> can't complain about that. The thing I really like about this banner is that it's... Um, so, obviously, it's 
acrylic paint and cotton but we've also got um what you can see from the reverse is two painted skeletons um but on the banner they've been covered up with um gaffer tape adhesive tape um don't know why possibly people thought that the skeletons were too on the nose um but it's it's really cool in terms of its object history so the last bit I'm going to light this evening, it's getting a bit dark um, outside and late in the day, so you can probably hear the vents that turn on in the evening <laughs> around the gallery. Um, the last one I'm going to light is my favourite section, um, I think my favourite section of the exhibition. It's um, the only mannequin dress costume we've got. Um, seated in a wheelchair on a plinth um, and it's the costume of Dennis Queen um, and we're, it's actually on loan from Dennis Queen um, and it's a dress that she made and a parasol mounted behind it that she made um, the acrylic paint was all flaking off so I have done quite a bit of consolidation work on that and mounted it beautifully I might add it looks fantastic so the dress um, and the white parasol were made for wearing in the Philadelphia Disability Pride Parade in 2016 and 17 so the dress is made out of a number of different t-shirts with different disability pride and related uh, slogans on them it's actually really cool from a you know costume making point of view but also we've mounted it in front of a couple of the t-shirts that have been used in the costume so it's a sort of floor length as it were foot length dress um, with pink bows to match the pink slogans um, and some of the slogans are disability pride um, we've got uh, piss on pity again what else have we got let's have a look we've got the to go boldly slogan as well uh disability rights the final frontier um proud angry and strong which is just so such a good phrase um so we've mounted it on the plinth in the wheelchair and on a white shop mannequin but um colleague beth has done a really fantastic job of making the mannequin suitable for the costume and suitable for both the dress that we're wanting to display and the person that we're wanting to talk about and it just looks it just looks fantastic we put it in about 45 minutes ago and i think every single one of us was close to tears so i'm gonna make sure to really do her justice um she's displayed in front of um an autism pride flag and an intersex flag in a sort of parade type arrangement. Um, the flags are mounted with magnets, if you're interested. I know you are. Um, and it just looks wonderful. So, yeah. I wonder where that light should go. Oh, excellent. There's a track right above it. Brilliant. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. 
In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're the C word and you've been listening to Purette Squires, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about redevelopments. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaward.show, tweet us at theseawardpodcast, or simply email us on theseawardpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Welcome to the Seaward, a conservative podcast. Oh, <laughs> that was wonderful. That was the top of the milk bottle exploding off. I probably should put it back in the fridge. It's a good reminder. <laughs> that is hilarious. Because if I don't find it, the cat will find it and chew it. There you go. It's a little silicon top.